Well, good morning, Project Church. Uh, it's a pleasure to once again come and open God's Word with you. Uh, we'll be continuing our series called Anchored this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. And I'd like to begin this morning by reading verses 4 through 12. Uh, this morning's sermon is called Anchored in Assurance. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 12. This is what it says. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, Son of God to their own contempt, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it was about six, six and a half years ago now when I was still fit enough to be playing Aussie Rules football that my team, the Labrador Tigers down on the Gold Coast, both in reserve grade and in seniors, won the preliminary final and qualified to go through to the grand final. Uh, Exciting times down there at Tigerland. And the buzz phrase that was kind of going around the club in the week or two leading up to the big day was the phrase, we're going to the show. That was the buzz phrase that was being said around the club. In fact, it was a popular phrase not only used during training to psych each other up before the big day, but some of my teammates even used it as a bit of a phrase of taunting to opposition teams who didn't actually qualify. Uh, I can remember sitting up on the hill at Broadbeach watching another game of football and uh, they would yell at the opposition, hey mate, don't worry about it, we're going to the show. And they used it as taunting, right? Oh, it was quite funny. (laughs) I had to say it was funny for you to laugh. That's interesting. All right. Now, whilst I'm uh, not here this morning to applaud the taunting that went on during those particular weeks, um, there was on the lips of my teammates a catchphrase that I'm convinced should be the war cry of our hearts as we navigate our Christian pilgrimage. We're going to the show. You see, the Christian life is a tough one. The Bible is not shy to remind us that we will endure trials of various kinds, We will suffer persecution in various forms. And we are all, each one of us, daily entrenched in the war against sin. The Christian life is tough. But the author of Hebrews is calling to our attention a deep theological truth that when anchored in our soul has the power to propel us forward so that we can run our race with vigor and with enthusiasm. And this deep truth is a Christian doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints. That is, that those who are in Christ, those who have been truly born again, will be kept and preserved by God in such a way that guarantees that they will persevere to the end and receive their glorious inheritance in the age to come. 
And the byproduct of receiving this truth in your heart is assurance. The assurance of your salvation. Those who are in Christ can know with certainty that they are going to the show. The Apostle John, he states it plainly for us in 1 John 5. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you might have it, but that you do have it and that you know that you have it. Charles Spurgeon, he put it this way. He said, it is far better to know that we have eternal life than to be able to predict the future of empires or to forecast the destiny of kings. It is not a matter of inference and deduction, but a matter of revelation from God. You are not to form an opinion upon it, but to believe it, for the Lord has said it. I am convinced that it is right for a child of God to know that God is his father and never to have a question in his heart as to his sonship. I am certain it is right for a soul that is married to Christ to know the love of the bridegroom and never to tolerate a cloud of suspicion to come between the soul and the full enjoyment of that love. So we not only have this assurance, but the truth is we need this assurance. Listen, if, if the Bible is true and there is a place of eternal conscious punishment that awaits those who are not in Christ, surely we need to know. Have you read places like Matthew 25 and Revelation 20? I mean, if I didn't have assurance in my heart, I would need an overdose of antihypertensive meds just to get through a day. The thought that I could be battling through my Christian pilgrimage, adding to a report card that I never get to view without knowing the fate of my soul, what a mess I would be. We need assurance of our salvation. But... Before the author of Hebrews addresses this idea of genuine Christian assurance, he first presents us with a very stern warning. And it's a warning concerning the dreadful and sobering reality that there will be those who ultimately will fall away from Jesus Christ. In fact, the entire letter of Hebrews is interspersed with such warnings. For example, look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. You'll find warnings like this throughout the book. He says, "'Take care, brothers.'" lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, you see, to to the original audience, this warning was chiefly bound up with the temptation to abandon the Christian faith and make your way back to Judaism, okay, with the persecution that this new church was suffering under the hands of the Jews uh, and under the Romans. It was very tempting to abandon the faith and return to the old covenant ways, That's what it meant to its original audience. But this warning can also be applied to any generation of church parishioners who may be tempted in some way to abandon the faith. What we're talking about here is commonly referred to as apostasy, which is when someone rejects the truth having previously professed it. Now, at this juncture, I'm I'm sure there may be some of you thinking that in the space of five minutes, I've already contradicted myself, right? I mean, Jaden, didn't you just say a moment ago that we can have assurance of salvation, that that we're going to the show, and, and now you're saying that some will fall away? I mean, that doesn't make sense. How do you put all those ingredients into the same theological smoothie? It doesn't quite add up, right? It's a fair question. In fact, it's really the age old question Can a Christian lose their salvation? Now, some would answer that question in the positive, and they would say, yes, it it is possible for a Christian to lose their salvation. 
And typically, the chief place they would employ in Scripture to affirm this position is the very passage that we're in today, Hebrews 6. They see right there, verses 4 through 6, it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have now fallen away to be restored to repentance. Of course a Christian can lose their salvation, citing Hebrews 6. But I disagree. Here's why. Let's take a closer look at the description of this individual who's fallen away here in Hebrews 6. Those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. You see, when I read this description, I'm not persuaded this language describes a genuine born-again believer. I think this description is of someone who gets really, really close to Jesus Someone who for a season may look as though their heart has been changed by Jesus, but in the final assessment, they don't actually know him. I'm not convinced this person is a born-again believer. I think this is the kind of person Jesus spoke about in the parable of the sower. Let's visit that in uh, Matthew 13. This is verses uh, 19 through 23. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Same language from Hebrews. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now there's a whole sermon that we could have just on this passage alone, but the point is this, that at one point in time, three out of the four seeds that were sown all looked like Christians. But only one seed truly is. Consider Judas Iscariot for a moment. Jesus, pardon me, Judas heard Jesus preach the gospel many times. He would have preached it himself on a few occasions, right? In that sense, even Judas was enlightened and tasted the goodness of the word. Judas would have performed miraculous things. In Matthew 10, we read that he was one of the 12 apostles who were commissioned by Christ to cast out unclean spirits and heal every disease and affliction. In that sense, Judas shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the powers of the age to come. But despite his proximity to Jesus, Judas didn't really know Jesus. They were acquaintances at best, and in the end, he betrayed him. We read in Matthew 26, 24, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas was an apostate. But listen, you you don't need to hand over Jesus to the Pharisees for 30 pieces of silver to be an apostate. It can happen today too. Listen, you, you may have grown up in a Christian home. You may regularly attend church. You may have even been baptized. Or you may have even been used by God to see miraculous healing and the power of the Holy Spirit. But none of that necessarily means that you've been born again. John Owen put it this way. 
He said, they may taste of the word in its truth, not its power. Of the worship of the church in its outward order, not in its inward beauty. Of the gifts of the church, not its graces. All right. So what of our earlier question? Can a Christian lose their salvation? Well, we're actually asking the wrong question altogether. Now, credit where credit is due. This is something that has been continually brought to my attention by a man who has discipled me for most of my adult life, Adam Ramsey. Can't thank him enough for what he's contributed to my life. This is how he puts it. I love this. He said, asking the question, can a Christian lose their salvation, is the wrong question altogether. Instead, we ought to ask, can Jesus lose a Christian? Can Jesus, the good shepherd, lose a Christian? Not on your life. No way known. Jesus is far too competent a shepherd to let one of his sheep get away. Under the care of any other shepherd, sure, sheep can be lost to the lion or the bear, but in the paddock of King Jesus, he's never lost a single sheep and he never will. Look at what he says in John's Gospel, chapter 6 and chapter 10. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you're in Christ, his hold on you is far too tight for you to get away, even when you let go. How many parents have tried to cross the road with small children? Right? They ever try and shake their hand free? What do you do? Tighten your grip. Jesus does the exact same thing with us. You see, even when his sheep backslide, even for years or decades at a time, when they have seasons of wandering outside the paddock, trying their best to blend in with the other goats, and they look as though they've abandoned the shepherd for good, let me tell you, every single time, Jesus will leave the 99 on the mountains and go find the one that went astray. He is an expert at rescue missions. So listen, if... If you're here today and you know, you're a sheep that's gone astray. Your relationship with Jesus isn't where it should be. Let me tell you, you should really give up running. But listen, even if you don't, I promise Jesus will come and get you. He loves you so much that if necessary, he will break your legs and carry you back on his shoulders if necessary. I'm speaking from experience on that one. Trust me. But here's the thing we need to remember, and this is really important for us. Sheep who have gone astray and apostates, from our finite, non-sovereign perspective, can look as though they're in exactly the same predicament. But there's a fundamental difference that the author of Hebrews points out. Only one of these predicaments is reversible. Look at the way Richard Faircloud described it. It's a sobering quote, but I think he's encapsulated it beautifully. He says, for, for although a believer may fall, 
yet he falls only as a cork falls into the water, which may for a time be immersed, but it will rise again and get aloft. But a hypocrite, read apostate, falls as lead into the water, which sinks and rises no more. In my mid-twenties, I had a two or three year period where I gave Jesus the flick. I had some strong areas of recalcitrant sin in my life. I was harboring bitterness towards him because of how disappointed I was with how certain parts of my life had turned out. And I didn't want a bar of him. And I let him know. But my shepherd came and got me. And I know that even when I was in this gone astray season, there were people close to me who hadn't given up on me. And they didn't decide to relegate me to the attic of apostasy. (laughs) These people were wise enough to know that though there are many books you can purchase at Kurong, none of us can get our hands on the Lamb's Book of Life. We don't know who God's sheep are at the end of the day. The goggles of election are not in our possession. So when we see people departing from the faith, it's not our job to start filtering the sheep from the goats, but to pray and intercede for them as though they truly belong to Christ. Consider everyone a sheep until proven otherwise on the other side of eternity. I said a moment ago that my shepherd came and got me. But do you know one of the means he employed to bring me back? There were several, let me tell you. I could tell you some stories. But honestly, it was through passages like this one. I can remember driving home one night, yelling quite viciously at God, and somehow the warnings of Hebrews were brought to my attention. I probably hadn't read them in, I don't know, four years. And it frightened me. You see, although a Christian cannot lose their salvation, one of the means God employs to ensure this is so is to have us read the warnings in the book of Hebrews. Now, some people say, well, if a Christian can't lose their salvation, then the warnings here aren't really warnings at all. I say no. They are the sometimes necessary fear-inducing means that God employs so that our faith is a persevering faith. These warnings are for Christians. But there's a lot more here for Christians. Let's look at verses 9 through 12 again. Though we speak in this way, aka, though we've just spoken about the intense topic of apostasy, okay, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now, notice this. This is the only time in the entire book of Hebrews that the word beloved is used, okay? So he's moving from like a stern warning to a a warmer pastoral tone. Notice also the change in pronouns. It's no longer those and them, the apostates. It's, it's you and we. What's he doing? He's, he's throwing a blanket over his congregation and affirming their faith. Beloved, we feel sure that you're the real deal. All right, how is it that, can he, how is it that he can feel so sure? Verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work... And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. The author of Hebrews is saying that he can be sure of the authenticity of their faith because he has witnessed the evidence that their faith has shown itself to be genuine. I've said it many times here at the project, we are saved by faith alone, but true faith is never alone. It always evidences itself in good works. We covered that in our James series last year. Faith without works is dead. 
So by application for us, one of the ways we can experience this genuine assurance of salvation is by having an honest look at our lives and asking the question, can people tell by my actions that my heart has been transformed by Jesus? Can someone who has known me for many years, maybe even a non-Christian friend, can they look at you and go, man, Trev was the loosest unit I ever met. He was a menace on the beers. Now he just, <clears throat> pardon me, he just, he just enjoys the odd nightcap, he volunteers at an orphanage and he plays piano on the worship team. What happened to Trev? He changed, right? He's different. God bless all the Trevors in the room, by the way. So quick, quick moment of self-reflection, like where are you up to? Now, this isn't to preach perfectionism. We don't preach that here. At the end of the day, we are all and will continue to be works in progress until Jesus gets back. But can you see a change? Albeit subtly at times. And does that observable change remind you that you truly belong to Jesus? And if you can't see change, it's possible that maybe you don't. Now, the moment I say that, as much as that's true, examining growth in holiness and our service in the body of Christ is not the only mechanism from which we draw assurance. Let me give you another one. The inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. Look at Romans 8, 14 through 17. This is how else we know we have assurance of salvation. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Look at this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The Apostle Paul here tells us that if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he himself will assure you that you've been adopted into God's family. What a concept. How do I know that I belong to God? Well, his Spirit bears witness to it. In a mysterious way, the Spirit partners with me and helps me to cry out and refer to God Almighty as my dad, as my father. Our assurance in this sense is nothing shy of incredibly supernatural. The Holy Spirit gives us what John Frame calls existential revelation. Revelation that we belong to God. Let me ask you this morning, do you have that? If you don't, I I desire that for you. And so does the author of Hebrews. Look at verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I used to run a community group on the Gold Coast um, with my sister. We did that for about three, three and a half years, some of the most enjoyable years of my life. And we had a young lady attend our group from time to time. We we became very good friends with her. um, And she believed in uh, in the doctrine of purgatory. which effectively says that, well, the cross was a pretty potent catalyst in removing your sin, but at the end of the day, you're still a sinner. And if you die today, you probably still need to undergo decades of purification in a kind of torturous washroom um, so that you can enter heaven cleansed. 
And even then, you don't know this side of eternity, just how long you may spend in purgatory. And if you commit certain categories of sins, it may not end at all. This is what she believed. Well, let's just say I pushed back on this idea. And one of the phrases I became famous for as I did this, famous in the context of the 20-odd people in our group, right, um, was the phrase, I'm going to the dance. (laughs) Going to the show, going to the dance. I'm going places this morning, right? But this is what I used to say. I'm going to the dance. You can't look at my salvation and say that all bets are off. You can take it to the bank. I'm going to the dance because Jesus didn't say it has begun. He said it is finished. I can take a backward look at the grounds of my justification in the past and a forward look to the guarantee of my inheritance in the future and in the present, though I am simultaneously saint and sinner. I can tell you with the utmost assurance, the spirit bears witness in my heart. I'm going to the dance. This is my favourite doctrine, by the way, just saying. (laughs) I've got a ticket to the dance. I wasn't good enough to earn it. So how on earth could I possibly be bad enough to lose it? This phrase really bothered her. She's a good friend of ours, but she didn't like that phrase. You see, one of the charges that gets brought up against these doctrines of the perseverance of the saints, the assurance of salvation... And some of the associated doctrines, like justification by faith alone, is that it causes people to become complacent and sluggish. That's the charge, all right? Oh, well, I'm going to heaven. Let's just live it up. The charge is that these doctrines lead to licentious living and lawlessness. Whenever you're preaching the gospel of the New Testament, people will charge you with that. But the author of Hebrews doesn't see it that way at all. In fact, for him, it's the exact opposite. Look what he says. Have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. He's saying that the fuel that empowers us to keep waging war on sin, the fuel to keep enduring persecution and suffering, the fuel to keep serving our brothers and sisters in Christ, the fuel to keep sharing the gospel, the fuel to keep imitating the faithful Christian lives of those who have gone before us, is none other than knowing the guaranteed outcome of that perseverance, your glorious inheritance in the age to come. We have this assurance. As I said, I get very excited about this topic. But the counsel and wisdom of many centuries of Christians who have gone before us would say that sometimes there are seasons, even in the life of a genuine believer, even mature believers who have followed the Lord for a long time, there are seasons when our assurance gets a bit clogged. Um, when I'm on the phone to my dad, who lives back on the Gold Coast, he often has to warn me, mate, I'm just driving through Mount Nathan, going up the mountain, the reception's going to cut out at any point, right? Um, we had to navigate that uh, the whole time we lived at Mount Nathan growing up. And sometimes our assurance of salvation is a bit like that. We feel like the reception gets cut off at different points in our journey. Sometimes sin or, or suffering or different seasons in life can make us feel as though the reception gets cut off. So what are we to do in those moments? Listen, if, if you're in the middle of something like that at the moment, please don't let today's sermon like bludgeon you. You need assurance, <laughs> right? Sometimes, for whatever reason, it gets clogged. And often, assurance is something that we grow up into as we follow Jesus. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation, divers' ways shaken, diminished and intermitted, 
as by negligence in preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the Holy Spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance, and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and have no light. Yet are they never so utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. So, beloved, whether we feel it or not, rest assured we're going to the dance. (laughs) 